this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track, but there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. So this episode of Built to Sell Radio is a little bit different. Usually, I ask the questions, and in this case, I'm going to reverse the rules, and I'm going to sit in the answering seat and answer your questions. We've gone out to our social media channels at a couple of events as well and asked sort of what are your big questions around building to sell, around exiting your business? And what I've got here is 10 questions I'm going to take you through, and I'm just going to give you my unvarnished answers to these 10 questions. We'll do five this week and five next week. And together, hopefully, you'll find them interesting and another perspective. My answers may not be the right answers. They're just simply my answers. So take them for with a pinch of salt. But here they are, 10 questions that we get around exiting your company. All right, question number one is one I get a lot, which is how and when should I tell my employees I'm thinking of selling? This is arguably one of the trickiest things to do when you're contemplating selling your company because everything in your gut, in your heart, suggests that you go out and tell all your employees, right? These are the people that have built the business with you. They're the people that have entrusted, you know, you've entrusted to carry on your vision. You've gone through all kinds of ups and downs together. So it's natural to want to tell your employees you're thinking of selling. And for some entrepreneurs I've spoken with for the show and elsewhere, uh, that's the right thing to do. They, they've just decided fundamentally that being totally transparent with their employees throughout the process is the right thing to do. Obviously, the downside of that are that you can potentially tip off the other side, the acquirers, potential uh, competitors that you have that you are thinking of selling. You can also in, uh, induce lots of fear in key employees that they're going to lose their jobs and that can also have them leaving or looking for other work. And you may lose key people for nothing. As, as you probably know through listening to the show, a lot of deals don't happen. And so if you tell your employees early in the process, uh, you may be unnecessarily concerning them in a situation where you may not end up selling. And, and so what's the right thing to do? Because I could make a case on either side of that equation, but here's what I would do in your shoes. I would divide my employees into two buckets. Uh, the first bucket is your kind of rank and file employees. These are uh, are the, the the blocking and tackling employees that you need to do your uh, your business that you are that are key employees, but not necessarily uh, your senior most employees. And so that's bucket one. Now, bucket two are going to be your senior most employees. So if you have a general manager or second in command, if you have a head of sales or any sort of C level or senior level, vice president level person you're going to put in bucket two. Now, 
For the folks in bucket one, these are, again, your sort of everyday employees. I would not tell them until the check clears your bank account. I know that's hard to hear, and I know that may sound duplicitous and and uh, and wrongheaded and even uh, you know manipulative, and and it's probably all those things. The problem is that for every deal that gets done, there's probably three that fall apart during due diligence. And if you're telling your employees that you're contemplating selling or that you're in, indeed engaged in a negotiation process it can really take away your negotiation leverage. If you've got employees leaving, if employees are holding you ransom saying, I don't want to you to sell to A customer or B company, um, you can actually derail your sale process. And as I said earlier, not necessarily for a good reason. For many deals, they fall apart at diligence and you would be upsetting employees all along the way, in many cases unnecessarily. Now, the second bucket of your employees, I think you do tell. I think you do let them know. Uh, again, these are your vice president level or your C-level employees. I think you do have to bring them into the fold, primarily because if you show up at the negotiation table with a buyer on your own, you're going to put yourself at an enormous disadvantage. They're going to see that you are the company, that you're the decision maker, that you don't have a team built around you. And as a buyer, that's simply going to lead them to give you a a fat earnout or a healthy earnout, a long, in many cases, arduous earnout, where in an earnout, if you don't know, is where they put essentially a set of goals in front of you and and ask you to achieve them to 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 win the majority of or at least a part part of your sale proceeds. And that's the kind of enemy of any entrepreneur is an earnout. So you want to avoid that as, as best you can, or at least minimize your uh, earnout. And the way to do that in many cases is to show up to the negotiation meetings with an executive team. So you can make the case that you've got a team behind you, uh, that there are other people, functional experts in your company doing the work. Now, what you're going to want to do, obviously, is when you let those key employees into the fold, you're going to want to make sure that they have both a confidentiality agreement, that they, they, they agree to not share it with other people or outside or inside the company, and that you've got some sort of incentive for them uh, for helping you consummate a deal. Uh, and this can this doesn't have to be stock options, doesn't have to be stock. If you'd rather not make it uh, contingent on stock or involve stock, you can simply make it a stay bonus or a success bonus. So it could be, you know, if we if we successfully sell this company, you'll get a bonus of X, you know, the day the deal closes and, you know, another, you know, 2X one year after the deal closes if you want to keep them around and make sure they help you in the transition. Uh, but those key employees, I think you do want to let them into the fold and let them know again, primarily because you're going to want to show up at that, that management meeting with a potential acquirer with a team in tow. So that's question number one. And if you're interested, by the way, in, in sort of hearing some other entrepreneurs' perspective on that, we did a great episode of Built to Sell Radio with a guy named Anthony Amos. It was episode number 88, and it was a story, as you might remember if you've been listening for a while, of the story of Hydro Dog, which is a mobile dog washing service. He's a great entrepreneur. It's a great episode, actually. He talks a little bit about how he told the employees of Hydro Dog. So that's episode 88. You find that at Built to Sell.com. Question number two. 
uh, is uh, all around the idea of raising money. And the question really comes down to how do I know when to bootstrap my business or when I should raise money? And so here's why I land on this. You know, raising money, let me, let me back up. There is a, you could probably find this on the internet and Google it, Google it if you want. Um, I wrote a blog post a couple of years ago called Happy, Rich, or Famous, Pick One. <laughs> and the idea behind the blog post is there are three different ways that you can build a company. The first is a, a business that is really a craft. It is something that you deeply enjoy doing that you find just immense intrinsic value in delivering. Maybe you're an amazing SEO consultant and you just love uh, really uh, kind of diagnosing the Google algorithm. Maybe you you love building bikes and, and the idea of building custom-made bicycles is, is just something that, that you just fundamentally love. Some of the happiest entrepreneurs I've met are ones that have no uh, possible prospects to sell their company because they are essentially craftspeople delivering a craft. They spend six, eight, ten hours of their day every day doing the work. They're not building a company. Uh, Michael Gerber, the, the famous author of the book The E Myth, which today to this day is probably the you know the best uh, book for any startup entrepreneur to read, uh, you know, talked about working on versus in the business. These craftspeople are working in the business. They're doing the work. And they're, so, they're some of the happiest people that I've met. They will, by contrast, never build a valuable company, or rarely do they build a valuable company, and rarely do they become famous, perhaps as artisans in their local industry, their local community, but, but rarely do they become famous. But again, just because they're spending so much time doing the work, and they're doing it in a context where they control their time and the, you know, the, the work they're doing, they're among the happiest people that I know. And so that's certainly one approach you can take to running a company. The other this idea of becoming famous is to go out and raise a bunch of money. Um, you know, there is there are lots of options to raise money these days. Um, I won't go through all the details, but I'm sure you have seen the various different sort of angel rounds, rounds of friends and family, you know, first round, second round, third round, et cetera, rounds of raising money through, again, either friends, family, angels, all the way up to in the most sophisticated transactions, venture capitalists. And in my experience, this is a great way to become famous. <laughs> this is uh, where some of the, the really, the, 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 the quite the popular names of the, the entrepreneurial world come from. Because there's something, there's nothing like, you know, injecting an enormous amount of, in, a, in a company and finding out sort of how fast it can grow, how many employees you can take on. And these are the businesses in many cases that become well known in, in the community. They get written up on TechCrunch or they're, they're written up in, their, in your local business press and, and their founders are, are sort of held up as, as, as real success stories. The problem, of course, with being a venture-backed company is that in many cases, the dilution effect of the, for the entrepreneur is such that the entrepreneur is left with little or nothing at the end of the day. Now, of course, that doesn't always happen. We could all point to very celebrated examples, Tesla, Facebook, um, you know, many, many examples where venture-backed companies go on to wild success for both the investors as well as the owners. But in many more cases, my opinion is that venture-backed companies drown 
flooded essentially like flooding the engine of a car flooded with money they are asked to grow so quickly on an infrastructure that can't quite support it that many founders fail it's 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 a it's a cliche to even say nine out of ten venture back companies fail it's probably not that high the latest stat i saw was out of eight something like one will be a wild success two or three will be okay and and the rest will will fail and of course if, if you fail as a founder well then you'll erase any any equity you've built if you're okay in other words you're one of those you know businesses that kind of bump along not a huge success but certainly not a failure either the venture capitalists are likely to want to try their hand at another ceo in other words they're going to remove you or if you're that one tremendous success, then you it's essentially like winning the lottery. But for me, I wouldn't want to to sort of stake my life or or you know my financial uh, wherewithal on a lottery ticket, and which is what I I think in many cases uh, raising venture capital really has become. The other piece of raising venture capital or any sort of significant investment round is that if not done correctly with the help of a deal lawyer, uh, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble. Um, one of the most famous examples or gotchas or loopholes is the liquidity preference, uh, where venture capitalists will do a deal. They'll say, look, we're gonna put in, you know, whatever, $10 million into your company, but we get a liquidity preference, meaning when you go to sell your business, you're gonna give us the first X million dollars. If it's a one X liquidity preference, then you're gonna give them the money they've invested. If it's a two X liquidity preference, clearly they're going to get two times the money they've invested before you see a penny. And and there's that's one of a variety of different sort of tips and tricks and, and not anything, anything that's illegal or unethical, I'm not suggesting that, but simply ways that VCs will protect themselves at, in many cases, uh, the detriment to the founder. So if you want to be famous, I by all means, uh, a VC-backed company is the way to go. But there are a lot of downsides. The one other downside of a VC-backed company is that they can also misalign with your own personal objectives. As you go into a business, in many cases, it's all you know, rainbows and butterflies and unicorns and whatever the expression is. There is lots of enthusiasm, lots of excitement around your business. And you go into it with a view to building the next Google, the next uh, Apple, whatever. But as you go into you know, uh, further into the business, you may find that your objections or objectives misalign with the venture capitalist. If the venture capitalist thinks you're going to be that one out of eight that is a super uh, exit, they're going to want to push you to drive for maximum valuation and really drive harder and faster than maybe you even want to. In many cases, you might get an offer which would please you immensely as a founder, but doesn't please them as a VC. Um, Rand Fishkin talks about this in his latest book. I don't know if you've read this yet. It's just out uh, in the in the last couple of weeks called Lost and Founder. And he takes a, an unvarnished, uh, really quite uh, spectacular view of venture-backed startups and, and some of the criticisms that he has and some of the, the downsides that, that he feels are associated with the venture-backed startup. So if you're thinking of going down the route of, of a VC-funded business, certainly pick up Lost and Founder by Rand Fishkin. I'll put it in the show notes as well. The third option, obviously, is to try to be rich. So again, you, you can be happy, 
famous or rich. And rich really, I think, happens most frequently and with the highest degree of consistency when you find a quiet corner of the universe where you develop a killer product that customers love, that where there isn't a lot of competition, which allows you to create some good, healthy margins for yourself and ultimately have a successful exit wherein you retain most of the shares. Um, you know, if you want to ask which is harder, building a $100 million venture capital-backed company or building a $10 million, you know, small business that's no one ever heard of, that no one has ever heard of, I would say the latter uh, every time. The latter is a business where you can grow it organically, you can grow it under the radar, nobody's really coming after you from a competition perspective, if again, you've picked a quiet little niche. But if you retain 100% of the equity, uh, and you're able to sell it for, let's say, just to pick a number out of the hat, one times revenue, well, that's a $10 million payday for you personally. If you build that $100 million venture-backed startup and you're able to retain 10% of the equity, which would be a good thing, uh, without arduous liquidity preferences or terms that you can't really get away from, um, you walk away from that $100 million startup with $10 million in your jeans. But man, that's a tough road. Um, I personally have never gone that route road, uh, but I, I know some people who have, and, and I think read enough to know that that is a very difficult uh, challenge is both the uh, challenge statistically, given roughly one out of every eight are 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 wildly successful. But that doesn't even consider the fact that for every one venture back company, there's probably a thousand or two out there that seek venture capital that never actually raise any venture capital. So you're you're in a very 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 tiny proportion of the world that ever creates a hundred million dollar venture back company, yet. Uh, the economic rewards, personally, are probably the same as taking a much easier, quieter route to to wealth. So again, happy, rich, or famous, pick one. And, and I think that's my answer to whether you should bootstrap or raise money. Um, there's actually a couple of other episodes of Built to Sell Radio that really do a great job of talking about this. David Hauser uh, started Grasshopper, which he sold for $165 million and didn't take venture capital. Uh, he did that through funding it by having customers pay up front and is really one of the most spectacular exits we've had on the show. He was episode 152. David Hauser, H-A-U-S-E-R. Company was called Grasshopper. It was a telephony business. The other one that provides the alternative view is Cindy Whitehead. And again, as I said in the outset, I don't want to suggest my I, you know my opinion is correct for you. Uh, please do seek the advice of your advisor uh, and and do what's right for you. Cindy, you know, projects the the opposite or presents the opposite point of view. She was the one who started the female Viagra. She's episode one hundred and eighteen. And Cindy talks about the idea of hey, would you rather own one hundred percent of something small or or you know five, ten, twelve percent? of something huge, world-changing. And, and in her case, she chose the latter route. She, um, she raised a lot of money uh, for her company uh, and, and ultimately had an, a you know, huge billion-dollar exit of which she admittedly had a small slice of by the time she exited, but she wouldn't change her way of doing it either. So again, not, not necessarily uh, the right thing to do from, you know, from my perspective, um, but it's certainly a viable option for a lot of entrepreneurs and you've got to do what's right for you. So I encourage you to, to check out episode 118 with Cindy Whitehead and episode 152 with David Hauser. 
Another question here we've got is what are the most sort of common things you see overlooked in the sale of a business? What are the kind of hidden traps or hidden uh, sort of things that, that, that owners often sort of disregard or forget about? Um, and I would say arguably the, the most important document or one of the most important documents, there's probably a few. There's, there's obviously the share purchase agreement that you're going to go through. And to give you a sense of the, the kind of sequence of documents you're going you're gonna to get, likely you'll get at the beginning uh, some sort of letter of intent from a buyer, which would be usually a non-binding document, be you know two or three, four pages long, which would say, say what the buyer was willing to pay for your business, usually as an actual price, as, a, as opposed to a multiple of, of, of earnings, it's usually an actual figure. It would also talk about what the, that buyer would expect to do in the way of due diligence before they were willing to firm up that offer. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about the currency that they, they envision um, you know, using to buy your business, whether envisioning cash or some sort of stock play. And then there's usually going to be something called a no-shop clause or, in essence, basically giving them exclusivity, usually for 30, 60, 90 days, so they could do their due diligence. This document, the LOI, is usually non-binding, and in only rare cases have I ever seen a breakup fee. In other words, the buyer really has nothing to lose at this point. Uh, they're going to spend 60 days uh, kind of combing through your numbers, and there's really nothing you can do at that point. Um, you can choose to not sign the no shop clause, but you may get a lot of pushback from a buyer saying, look, we're not willing to you know, invest uh, what, what could be tens of thousands of dollars in due diligence if we know that there's other people uh, uh, looking over this business. So they'll often use that as a, as a negotiation ploy. And in, not, in many, many, many cases, I think the vast majority of cases, you're going to have to sign the no shop clause. The next sort of 60 days, you go through diligence, they'll ask you a bunch of questions, you'll have to provide a bunch of information. And if all goes well, you will get to the point of a share purchase agreement. And, and again, that document will turn many, many times between your lawyer and their lawyer. And at the end of the day, you will have to negotiate one other document. Uh, well, it, it may be part of the shareholders or share purchase agreement, but oftentimes it's a separate document, which is your employment agreement. Uh, yeah you're going to have to be an employee for a while. I know a lot of you have not been an employee for, uh, in many cases, years, but the trick of selling your company is that you'll likely have to go through some sort of transition period, some sort of period where you're working for the buyer and you need to determine what the conditions under which you are prepared to work are. And this document really can be important. It may or may not include a, a non-compete as well. That could be a separate document, but it but it may include a non-compete as part of uh, part of your employment agreement or the share purchase agreement. But really, the employment agreement is one that is often overlooked because, frankly, nobody wants to be an employee again after having founded and built up a successful business. The idea of actually becoming an employee again is like the anathema. It's like exactly the opposite of what we are, I think, as entrepreneurs. But nevertheless, you'll probably have to spend some time as an employee. And it's a document that is often overlooked. So the things you're going to want to look out for is obviously kind of under what conditions you're being employed. Um, uh, you know, your your bonus, your long-term incentives, your holiday vacation, all the things that you would classically uh, consider in, the, in a traditional employment agreement. But here you're also wanting to understand your job description and your scope of authority, your budget, for example, because as 
an employee, you're likely to have to try to reach some goals that'll be part of an earnout. And at that point, you're going to want to ensure that your job description and your scope of control and your budget, if there is one, is well cleared, well, uh, you know, well documented for you, uh, because that's going to give you sort of a legal step to uh, a leg to stand on. If it comes to that, you're also going to want to contemplate in your employment agreement and potentially your share purchase agreement. What happens if your acquirer itself gets acquired? I know this is, is sort of nonsensical or it may strike you as odd, but acquirers themselves do get acquired from time to time. And what happens under those scenarios is worth contemplating in those agreements, both your employment agreement as well as your share purchase agreement. Because when you think about it, that changes the rules, right? All of a sudden you go from having somebody you've agreed to a set of uh, you know operating uh, goals with to now being one company removed from that individual. You may be now reporting to someone you don't know that doesn't share the same vision for your company as a division of theirs, et cetera. And it can be a real point of friction. One of the uh, the, the the episodes we did earlier on at Built to Sell Radio uh, looked at this. It was with a guy named Eric Sitt. Uh, it's episode 73 if you want to look it up. But Eric sold his company and was in the midst of an earnout. Things were going fine up until the moment that the company that bought his got bought out itself. And that's when uh, it became impossible for Eric to meet the earnout goals and it became a big mess. Uh, so a real cautionary tale, but one of those things that often gets overlooked. And so if you ask sort of what are the what are the common things that get overlooked, I would I would say that in a in a in a negotiation, you're gonna find you're gonna have a few documents, you know, share purchase agreement. You think about because it's obviously where they put the price they're willing to pay for your business. The non-compete is another one that you probably think about a little bit. Uh, but the employee agreement can be an important document and uh, and have sort of knock-on effects downstream. I think it's worth checking out. Check out Eric Sitz interview, episode seventy-three for more on that. All right, we're up to question number four. How do I figure out who the strategic acquirers are for my business? Great question, and it can be tough. It can be tough. So let's first of all define what a strategic acquirer is. So there's two, I mean, round numbers. There's two ways you can categorize uh, buyers of companies, and this is probably an oversimplification, but it'll do for today. Uh, and that is a financial buyer and a strategic buyer. So in a financial buyer, uh, they are sometimes a private equity uh, firm, could be a, an individual family office. They're essentially looking at a return on the money that they invest in your company. So they buy your business for X and they want to see a return on that investment over time. And so for them, really what they're looking at when they look at your company is your future stream of profit. That's what they're valuing. Essentially, that's what you're, uh, you're selling and that's what they're buying is your future stream of profit. A lot of us as entrepreneurs want to believe that you know our customer list is worth something, our brand is important, our location is what makes us valuable. To a financial buyer, all those are inputs into the output they care about, which is your future stream of profit. So don't confuse what they're buying. Again, they're buying your future stream of profit with the inputs that help you get there, which is your location, your brand, your customer list, et cetera. But again, financial buyers buy your future stream of profit. And the way they determine 
whether or not to spend more or less for your future stream of profit comes down to how risky they view that stream of profit to be. If you've got a business where the profits go wildly up and down and there's no kind of uh, you know, repetitive nature to the revenue, the profits look like they're uh, very um, all over the map like a roller coaster, well, they're going to pay much less than a business that has steady and growing profits that looks like it just churns out money on a very consistent basis. Because again, and from an investment perspective, all they're looking at is return on investment. And like you and I, um, when we're forced to invest in something with a, uh, a sketchy future, uh, not a certain future, we demand a much higher return on investment, meaning they, they, they need to spend more less to buy your company. Likewise, if, if you believe you're buying a stock or a company that is just bulletproof, that is like a Swiss watch in the way it, drill, it generates profits, then you might be willing to spend a little bit more for that asset, which is when you when they spend more to buy your company. So that's a financial buyer. The second uh, type of buyer is the strategic buyer, where essentially they're making a slightly different calculus in their own minds. They're saying, what is your company worth in our hands? What is your company worth in our hands? Um, that is the, the, the sort of viewpoint of a strategic buyer. So, um, you know, there's a celebrated story uh, a couple of years ago when LinkedIn was purchased by Microsoft. And you might say, uh, I, you know, someone could tell me in the show notes what, what Microsoft paid for LinkedIn. It, it's, it's, I think it was like, I want to say $24, $26 billion. It was a huge, you know, massive acquisition. And you might say, how on earth did Microsoft uh, come up with that number? Because it could not have been a multiple of their earnings. At the time, LinkedIn had you know, relatively modest earnings. It would have been practically an infinite multiple of its earnings. But Microsoft paid you know, multiple billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars for LinkedIn. Why would they do that? Why in their hands was it worth so much? Well, Microsoft... You know, I don't have any proprietary knowledge of what's going on in Redmond, but I can tell you from my experience, they would have made the calculation based on what it was worth in their hands. So they probably would have said something like, man, we've got a, a billion machines out there that are running old versions of Microsoft product, Microsoft, uh, you know, Office, Windows, all these, tr you know, traditional old uh, on-premise uh, versions of Microsoft product. And what we really want to do is move people over to the cloud. We want to, you know, create subscriptions for Office 365 and, and, and products like that. And so we need to come up with a really compelling way for those people who own those machines running older versions of Microsoft product to upgrade, to upgrade to Office 365. Further, I think they would have looked at an acquisition like LinkedIn and said, man, we could really create some awesome integrations here with LinkedIn products. So one example might be, you know, if you, if you have, if you're using Outlook, their calendaring um, tool, and you have a, an, uh, a meeting with, you know, Jane Doe, well, if you clicked on the name Jane Doe in your Microsoft Outlook calendar invite, you could get sucked into that invite, Jane Doe's LinkedIn profile. And and then you'd have a really you know rich conversation, some you know thought starters for your conversation with Jane Doe because you can see right there in Outlook her profile, and so you can see like those types of integrations that Microsoft I think envisions for uh, LinkedIn would cause them to to think, man, what if we could get 
some of those machines to upgrade because we had a really elegant integration with LinkedIn. Let's say, for example, we were able to get uh, of our billion machines running an old version of Microsoft product. Maybe we get 10% of them to upgrade because we'd integrated LinkedIn. Well, now you're talking about 10% of a billion machines. Well, that's 100 million upgrades to Office 365. And at 100 bucks a year, you can start to see that it would make economic sense for them to acquire LinkedIn. But it's nothing to do with a multiple of earnings or the future stream of profit of LinkedIn. Again, in a strategic acquisition, what they're doing is trying to estimate what value uh, your business is in their hands, how much your business is worth to them. And the question originally was, well, how do I spot the classic strategic acquirers for my business? A um, couple of ways. First of all, head to your industry trade show. Uh, I think industry sort of leaders will go to their trade show. Oftentimes they're recognized on the, uh, you know, on stage for having done some innovative work or some of their executives or speakers or, or, or sponsors of the industry event. But one of the kind of hidden reasons large company executives attend the industry event is often to scout acquisitions. So make sure you're out there at your industry event, uh, regardless of, of you know whether you want to contribute as a speaker or just an attendee. Know that that's in many, many cases where acquirers first introduce themselves to would-be acquisitions. I would say that over the last, I think we've done a hundred and I want to say 70 episodes of Built to Sell Radio now. I would say it's at least a dozen, maybe more than that, maybe two dozen uh, instances where the first relationship the founder of you know, forged with their, their ultimate buyer was at an industry event, an industry trade show. So I'd be at the industry event to identify who the strategics are. And then you really want to go through this sequence of questioning around you know, who would benefit from buying your company? Who has the most to gain? It might be a competitor of yours. It could be someone adjacent to you that sells a similar but different product to yours. Could be someone with a big sales force. Um, it could be an existing partner of yours. And this is really uh, where Steve Merch did a great job in his episode. Uh, Steve, if you haven't heard it, was episode 161. Steve was... Uh, a Microsoft employee who started a company called Vacation Spot, which is kind of an early version of VRBO, if you maybe even an early, early version of Airbnb. Uh, Airbnb. Uh, Steve founded this company and ultimately sold it. Uh, it's not at my fingertips. Again, check the show notes. I think it's 80, $86 million or something to that effect. But what Steve did early was realized that to, for Vacation Spot to reach critical mass and scale, he needed a ton of traffic, right? They were they were essentially offering a, a marketplace of vacation rentals, and they needed a ton of traffic, and not only just traffic, but vacation-going traffic, people who were looking to book a vacation. And so they did a tie-up in the very beginning of their business with Microsoft. At the time, they owned Expedia, the travel website. And so they sold 20% of a vacation spot to Expedia in return for a lifetime uh, agreement to put its vacation rental traffic through vacation spot. And so it was like pouring a, you know, a fire hose onto uh, a flame or, or, you know, jet fuel on a fire, if maybe that's a better analogy, wherein 
they got a ton of traffic and and it, that really was the the currency or the or the the fuel that allowed them to grow vacation spot very very quickly so when it came time for steve to exit the company totally in other words sell the 80% that he and his partners didn't already own it was only natural that they approach Expedia. At the time, Expedia had spun off of Microsoft, was a successful business, and they already had a strategic relationship. They already knew each other really, really well. And again, one of the common denominators we see in strategic acquisitions is they're not these, these wild, you know, first-time encounters. Uh, in many cases, they're companies that have known each other for many years. And it's simply a, an advanced or, or the next stage of a pre-existing relationship. So don't forget your partners, your existing partners, as potential acquisition candidates, especially if your goal is to sell to a strategic. Okay, question number five is, can the same criteria that you talk about in Value Builder for building a valuable company be what you look for when buying a company? It's interesting. I, you know, I've been asked on a few occasions, have you ever thought about uh, uh, writing a book about buying a company. And to be honest, I don't know the first thing about buying a company. I've never bought a company. I've invested in a couple. I've, I've built a few, but I've never actually been on the other side of the negotiation table. So I'm probably the world's worst person to write a book about how to buy a company. That being said, I have interviewed uh, quite a few entrepreneurs for Built to Sell Radio who do buy companies uh, for the purposes of uh, building them up and selling them. And I think increasingly that's going to be a very interesting uh, economic opportunity for entrepreneurs. You know, there's been uh, so much talked about it's It's almost cliche to say it, that the, um, you know, the baby boomers are retiring and it's creating a, a glut of businesses for sale. And I think to some extent that's true. I, I think, uh, uh, you know, there's a there's a book called the ten trillion dollar opportunity for advisors, which is this 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 sort of uh, describing this economic event of of all of these privately held businesses being sold, and of course, I think that's that's true to some extent, and and just basic supply and demand suggests that the, when there's more supply, that uh, the price will go down. So, arguably, as a savvy entrepreneur, you might be looking at that situation and saying, this is, a, this is and could be a really good time to buy a business. And um, it may be a really good time to buy a business that is relatively inexpensive. Because for a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, they don't build to sell. They don't focus on the eight drivers we talk about at Value Builder. And they build companies that they just want to leave quickly. And they, they also wildly misunderstand or, or uh, uh, don't estimate how long it will take to successfully sell a business. And so they end up kind of coming, limping their, their way to the finish line with no energy, uh, with the business that's in decline. And they, they, they turn to a broker or an M&A advisor and say, look, I, I need you to sell the business like immediately. Uh, you know, I kind of want to be out next week, <laughs> you know, and, which is the worst. By the way, it's the, that's the absolute worst nightmare for an intermediary to be given a mandate to quickly sell a business that's on the decline. It's a virtual recipe for making sure you get uh, you know, pennies on the dollar for your company. That being said, um, there are a lot of founders that are in that situation where they've just reached the end and virtually any price will, will do. And if you're 
certainly this is not our vision as a company. Our vision as a company is to level the playing field for business owners as they approach their exit. We want to make sure that, and we want to fight for, and we do fight for you to get a great exit. So by no means am I advocating for this as an approach, but it's some, it's one that, that we do see from time to time where acquirers will look at, you know, buy a business that is underperforming on all the eight key drivers of company value. And that founder, that entrepreneur makes it their mission to professionalize, improve the business's score on the eight key drivers, and ultimately builds a, a, a very valuable company. One of my favorite uh, examples of that um, Steve Hess, you, you may have heard the episode. It was, it was episode 149, where Steve and his partner bought Chris Craft out of bankruptcy. Now, Chris Craft, you, you, if you're not in the Great Lakes region uh, or the Muskokas, or you know, if you're not a boater, you probably have never heard about the Chris Craft brand, but it is a storied brand. You know, I, I live in Toronto where just a couple of hours north of us is a region called Muskoka where where everybody has a boat and gets around by boat. And the Chris Craft is is arguably one of the, the the real, you know, legacy premium brands. It's been around for decades. People kind of grew up driving these boats around. So there's all kinds of sort of dormant uh, loyalty, if you will, to this brand. And, and Steve bought the company out of bankruptcy. In fact, he didn't even, even really, uh, buy the company as an ongoing concern. He, he bought the, the rights to the name and a factory full of, in some cases, unfinished boats, uh, out of bankruptcy. And uh, he went, went about resuscitating the Chris Craft brand and ultimately sold a, you know, the company uh, in, a, in, a, in a multi, 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 multi-million dollar exit uh, to Winnebago, which the, you know, the big RV company. And so um, uh, he did the same thing, by the way, uh, with Indian Motorcycle. If you know the Indian Motorcycle brand, it's again a storied brand with lots of inherent sort of brand equity or sort of dormant or sleepy brand equity, I might say, uh, but built it up and resuscitated, invested in it, and, and ultimately uh, had a tremendous exit uh, with Indian Motorcycle. So th- this can be a strategy that we that you could use. Um, uh, so if you're interested in, in that sort of buy and, and ultimately sell approach and you know, buy low, sell high, or buy and then apply the eight key drivers of company value, then uh, certainly check out uh, the Chris Craft Story, Steve Hess, episode 149. Okay, I'm going to wrap and let you know next week that we're going to dig into a couple of other uh, questions. Uh, we're going to tackle how do you avoid going through due diligence with a buyer who's really not actually planning to buy your business. They're really on a fishing exercise. We'll talk about a strategy there. Um, we'll talk about... Uh, some key employees you might want to consider hiring to ensure a good transition or a good exit, in particular, the pros and cons of hiring a 2IC or second in command. Um, we'll talk about how do you attract a Fortune 500 buyer to your business or like a very large company to be interested in buying your business. We'll also answer the question, how do you bridge the gap between a buyer who wants to pay less for your business than you want to sell it for? And, and in particular, one approach to bridge that get uh, that gap 
And we'll also delve a little bit deeper into the definition of a strategic acquirer and give you a, another example of how to think about a strategic acquisition that's different than a financial acquisition. All that is coming up next week in our top 10 questions of business owners wanting to build to sell. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.